Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Thank you. So good to see all of you and just exciting to see faces that we have not, for many of us, seen physically for, what, two and a half months or so. So what a joy to be able to gather together this morning and to worship the Lord together. Um, But wow, what troubling circumstances we find ourselves in this morning as we gather as a church. Um, Obviously, we're still in the midst of this pandemic. Everything here for us feels different and looks different, and there's all these new guidelines and protocols about what this looks like. And then, of course, beyond the pandemic, we've got the tragic death of George Floyd this last week at the hands of police officers in Minneapolis. We've got protests and now even riots and violence across our nation. And so, to be honest with you, this morning as I gather with you to worship, I feel like I have mixed emotions. Again, on one hand, I'm, I'm excited. I'm blessed that we're able to be here. But on the other hand, I feel like my heart is so heavy. And as I look at the news and as I see what's going on, um, I find my own heart, again, just very, very heavy. And so um, what we're going to try to do this morning as we worship is kind of navigate through those two kind of polar opposite emotions. On one hand, it is good for us to be in the house of the Lord. We should celebrate. We should be thankful. We should be glad that we are here. And uh, we will pray in a moment, and we're going to rejoice and thank God that he has regathered the church. But again, on the other hand, uh, we understand that right now is a time of heaviness. And so we want to spend time this morning as a church family praying for peace, praying for healing, praying for justice in our nation. And as believers, we know that the ultimate solution is the unity that is ours in and through Jesus Christ. In fact, even in Galatians, which we're going to study together this morning, when you get to chapter 3, here's what we read from the Apostle Paul. This is Galatians 3, verses 27 through 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so based on that unity that we can have in Jesus Christ, we know that's where ultimate healing and reconciliation and peace comes from. But as we begin our worship service, I want to invite you now to pray with me as we commit these things to the Lord together. So let's pray. Father, if we're being honest this morning, for many of us, we do enter into the house of the Lord with mixed emotions. Lord, our hearts on one hand are very heavy this morning as we continue to process the magnitude of what is going on in the world around us. Lord, we pray for this virus, that you would continue to drive the numbers down, that you would heal people who are sick, that you would protect those who are, at this point, have not uh, gotten this virus, Lord. So God, please continue to do a work in this world as it relates to COVID-19. Lord, this morning we want to grieve with those who are grieving. Lord, we think of the Floyd family who have lost this man, George. God, we pray that you would continue to comfort this grieving family. Lord, we pray that you would be there for them in their pain and that you would bring people around them that would point them to the hope that is theirs in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for justice regarding the officers involved. Lord, we pray for the African-American community in general, because we know that not only George Floyd's death, but so many other instances that have happened recently are continuing the feelings of our brothers and sisters who are African-American, of feelings of pain and anger and frustration and fear. Lord, would you please comfort the African-American community? Lord, we pray for peace in Minneapolis this morning. And not just Minneapolis, but we pray for peace around our nation. Lord, we pray for protection for law enforcement. Lord, we know that so many law enforcement personnel are wonderful people who are doing such a great job and are doing such important work in keeping our cities safe. So Lord, protect law enforcement officers. Lord, we pray for protection for peaceful protesters, those who are marching to bring light on police brutality or injustices in our communities. Lord, we pray for protection for those who are peacefully protesting. Lord, we pray for protection for businesses, 
protection for people in these neighborhoods and communities. Lord, we pray for justice for those who are exploiting this situation and are using it as a pretense for violence or for a crime. Lord, we pray this morning for wisdom for our government officials who are having to balance so many competing interests right now. Lord, give them wisdom on how to handle this situation and how to restore peace and order in these cities and how to bring about justice in our society. Lord, we pray now too for the church. We pray for unity in the body of Christ. Lord, if anything, the pandemic and these issues that are surrounding race have once again highlighted the differing opinions even in the body of Christ. But Lord, we pray for unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, bring unity in the church. Lord, we pray that even for our own church, that we would be unified around the good news of the gospel. Lord, today, despite the heaviness of our hearts, we do give thanks and praise that we're able to regather physically. And Lord, we pray that as we worship you through song, as we study the scriptures together, and as we smile and interact with one another, even with physical distancing, Lord, we pray that it would bring joy and peace and comfort to each and every one of our hearts. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship, family. Good morning, church. I have to say good morning, too, because it's been way too long since I've seen some of you guys, like months. And uh, yeah, it's a little strange. We got masks on, and we put in our email to practice subdued singing. So we're going to try that. Some of you might resist. But let me just ask you, just try it. And, um, you know, we believe as a church and as a leadership team that singing is crucial. Worshiping together is vital to the church. And so I'm going to try to do this without my glasses fogging up. That's why I'm wearing a pink mask. It's the only one that helped. But um, feel free to stand. Feel free to sit. And uh, let's worship God together, okay? Chill wipers on my glasses. <laughs> this is pretty, pretty ridiculous, but that's okay. We'll work through it. Father 
Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. Our judge and our defendant suffered and crucified. the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. We'll sing it out, church. sing about our great need for Jesus. I mean, we always need Jesus, every second of the day. But that, that, that uh, heightened sense of needing Jesus is even more so now, amen? So let's sing about that as a church.
this morning both just excited and filled with joy that we can gather, but also recognizing, God, just the great sorrow and disunity and stress and tension in the world. And God, we're firmly convicted that that the world needs more of the church. And so we ask, God, that as we, we celebrate our gathering, as we celebrate the gospel, you would also by your Holy Spirit, just minister to us and help us to both lament as the church as we see this chaos. God, to to articulate and to lean on and believe the truth that we just sang, that we just desperately need you and the world needs you. And so we pray, God, that we would be a people who love you and love others and serve others who are convicted um, or have strong conviction, Lord, for justice and mercy, and God, that you would please minister to us this morning through your word. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. It's such a joy to see so many people here in the house of the Lord this morning. I want to welcome you, whether you're a member or a guest of Apostles Church. I have a smile on under this mask. I am happy to see you here this morning. Just a few quick announcements. First, I want to tell you, we don't have anything for you to hold or grab. Sorry, I need to keep this here. Um, But if this is your first time, or if you want to reach out to one of the pastors or leaders of the church, I encourage you to contact myself or Ryan or Daniel, and we'd be happy to give you more information about the church. If you're not on our email list to get information about uh, when we're opening and when we're gathering together, uh, that'd be a great way to do that. 
Secondly, we're not going to be passing around offering plates. As we have been through this time, we want to encourage you, if you're able, to mail in a check to the church or go online to our website. Uh, I think the information is behind me there. Uh, we also do have a basket uh, on the entryway of the church where you can drop your tithe or offering on the way out. And the third announcement is for our prayer and worship night, which is the first Wednesday of each month. Uh, we've run it the last two weeks or two times uh, through Zoom, and we're going to continue doing that. We want to ease into this gathering together again. So while it would be great to come here uh, and gather together on this Wednesday night, we're going to continue doing that via Zoom. And so again, if you don't get the emails from the church, if you don't have that contact information, please come talk to myself, uh, Daniel or Ryan, so that we can pass along that information because we would love to see each one of you on our prayer and worship night this Wednesday, uh, starting at 7 o'clock. Okay, with that, we're going to move to the reading of God's Word. And so we are in the book of Galatians. Uh, just last week, Pastor Daniel started the new series on the book of Galatians. We are still in chapter 1, and if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them to Galatians chapter 1. And if you feel comfortable, as is our practice here at Apostles Church, I'd encourage you to stand for the reading of God's word, and then we will move into the sermon. So Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ." This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Justin. Church, would you please pray with me? Father, we come to you now as a gathered church family. Lord, with hearts that are expectant, that you are going to speak to us, that you are going to minister to us, that you are going to instruct us in your holy word. So, Lord, we now give our attention to this passage of scripture that we believe is inspired, that we believe is God-breathed and is able to actually change us into the image of Christ. And so, Lord, speak to us, minister to us, teach us through your holy word. Even now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Okay, let, let's see if I remember how to do this. I've gotten very, very comfortable, I feel like, preaching to a completely empty sanctuary, staring at a camera the entire time. So I feel very intimidated seeing all of your beady little eyes looking at me above your masks right now. But we'll figure it out together. So that passage that Justin just read, those five verses there, um, if you're paying attention, they kind of sound like fighting words. Paul is obviously... Um, full of emotion here. He is obviously pretty fired up about something. And I think a question that's important for us to think about as the church and about as Christians is what kind of issues are worth fighting over in the church? What sorts of issues rise to that level that righteous people, godly people should actually be upset about and willing to fight over? Uh, the tragedy is that most fights within churches and interdenominational fights are over secondary or tertiary issues, and most fights in churches are over things like changing programs or committees or uh, musical styles for worship or whether believers can drink alcohol or not or the color of the carpet, which I guess in our case might be a worthy cause. I think seafoam green has got to go, so we need to change that at some point, but I won't fight over it. What I want us to notice this morning is that the issue that is at stake here in the churches in Galatia that Paul is addressing is the issue of distorting the gospel, of taking the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel message, and distorting that message. Because 
In distorting the gospel, there are eternal consequences for that. This is of eternal significance. And that's why the Apostle Paul here is so fired up. And that is why the Apostle Paul is ready to fight over these issues. That's why the Apostle Paul is willing to even see the church divided, casting certain people out of the congregation. Because, again, these are gospel issues. And as gospel issues, these have eternal consequences. And so what I want to do with our time this morning is kind of address the question, why is the gospel worth fighting for? And I think there are four answers in the text in these five verses for us this morning. So again, why is the gospel message worth fighting for? Well, number one in verse six is this, deserting the gospel is deserting God. Deserting the gospel is deserting God. Look at verse 6. Paul says, now, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting, check it out, him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So notice what he's saying. He's saying that in the very act of turning away from the true gospel, what you're doing is not just walking away from some ideas, not just walking away from a set of facts that may be true. What is actually happening if you go for a different gospel is that you're deserting God, that you are in fact walking away from the living God who can call you in his grace. This is why The Galatian church's tolerance of a false gospel is so astonishing to Paul. Because Paul's looking at it and he's going, look, you are actually deserting God, the God of all grace, the God who loves you, the God who called you and saves you. You're walking away from him. Now, the word deserted or deserting means a transfer of one's allegiance. So the word is often used of a soldiers deserting their unit or even revolting against their own government. That person is deserting and they are now changing their allegiance. I used to fight for this army unit or I used to fight for this government and now I am a turncoat. I have turned my back on my unit. And this is what the Galatians are on the verge of. If they accept a false gospel... A perverted, some of your translations say, perverted gospel, a distorted gospel. What they are doing is they are rejecting the God of all grace. You come to the living God by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, or you don't come at all. Period. There is no other way. You come through the true gospel. And get this, if you desert the gospel of God... You desert the God of the gospel. That's what happens. And Paul knows this. And so Paul senses that the gospel is so important that it is worth fighting for. He knows that souls are at stake. He knows that people being reconciled to their God is at stake. That's reason number one. Reason number two in verse seven. Distorting the gospel is destroying the gospel. Desert, or distorting the gospel is destroying the gospel. Verse 7 goes this way. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now this verse shows us how this false gospel and how this distortion of the gospel has come about. We talked about this a little bit last week, but he says it directly here in verse 7. He says, there are some who trouble you. Last week in the introduction to this book, we talked about how false teachers had infiltrated these churches that Paul and Barnabas had, had planted on their missionary journey through the region of Galatia. They had gone and planted all these churches. And now these false teachers that are sometimes called Judaizers had kind of come and retraced Paul and Barnabas's steps and they went into these churches and they gained prominence in these churches and they were distorting the law or the gospel of Jesus Christ. What was that gospel distortion? Well, what they were doing is they were teaching 
that in order for people to be truly or fully integrated into the people of God, in order for people, particularly Gentiles, non-Jews, to become members of Abraham's family, they needed to trust in Jesus, yes, but they also needed to abide by the law of Moses. Particularly, the men needed to be circumcised and they needed to abide by other aspects of the law of Moses. This is what they were teaching. It was Jesus plus keeping the law. And Paul is now saying, listen, that is a distortion of the gospel. That word distort can be rendered reverse. But they are reversing the gospel and I think that's enlightening. Because when somebody says to you, That in order for you to be saved or in order for you to be included in the family of God, it is Jesus plus something else. What is actually happening is that person is reversing the logic of the gospel. To where rather than the gospel being a gospel of the grace of God, the gospel is now being reversed and it is about merit. It's no longer about God freely saving us and rescuing us solely based on the work that Jesus does for us. Now it's based on, sure, what Jesus did plus what I bring to the table. So in this instance in Galatia, it was what Jesus did plus now I have to be obedient to the law. And Paul is saying, if that's the gospel that's being preached, it's actually a reversal of the logic of the gospel. Again, it's no longer about God freely rescuing you in Christ. It's about what you have to do to earn God's favor. Any addition to the gospel is a fatal subtraction. Any addition to the gospel is a fatal subtraction. If you want to improve on God's message of salvation, if you want to change God's message, you have actually destroyed the message. You have completely ripped the gospel of its power and it will no longer save. In fact, in verse 7, he tells us that this makes it no gospel at all. Remember, gospel means good news. Now to come along and say, look, in order for God to save you, in order for you to belong to God's people, here's what you have to do. Here's the work that you've got to do. Whether, again, it's obeying Moses' law, whether it's being a good person and cleaning up your life or any other thing that you need to do to earn God's favor, that is no longer a message of good news. There is no assurance in that. If somehow I have to get myself righteous enough to make God happy or to stay in God's favor, how is that good news for me? Because listen, I'm not righteous every single day. And newsflash, neither are you. This is only good news if the, the message of the gospel is a message of God's grace that God freely reconciles us to himself by his own work in Christ. That is good news. If I have to add anything to that, this becomes terrible news. It's no longer gospel. It's no longer good news. And not just terrible news for me or terrible news for you. It's terrible news For the world. If you have to add to what Jesus has done in order to be saved, listen, the message of the gospel becomes exclusive rather than inclusive. What do I mean by that? Well, again, let's say that the message of the gospel is that, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but you you also have to become really, really moral. You've got to get your life right in order to be accepted by God. Well, guess what? Now the message of the gospel is only for good people. It has has no benefit for people who can't get their act together. People who are sinners and in need. So all of a sudden the gospel becomes exclusive to a certain group of people. Or for the heresy here in Galatia, if it's about being a certain ethnicity or a certain type of people, you need to become Jewish in order to be saved. That's exclusive. But the message of the gospel, the true gospel, which is that God saves all sinners because of the work of Christ, if those sinners repent and believe in Jesus then all of a sudden the gospel is inclusive. That's an open-ended message for the entire world. And that is God's heart, is to see all of the nations reconciled back to him in and through Christ. And that is good news for the world. Why is the gospel worth fighting over? Well, distorting the gospel is destroying the gospel. So the gospel needs to be defended. Third reason, verses 8 and 9 distorting the gospel, and this is going to get heavy, 
Distorting the gospel is inviting damnation. Paul writes this starting in verse 8. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. These are heavy words indeed. The word accursed in the Greek is the word anathema. Many of you have heard the word anathema. John Stott explains the meaning of anathema when he writes this. Anathema was used in the Greek Old Testament for the divine ban. The curse of God resting upon anything or anyone devoted by him to destruction. So Paul, in pronouncing anathema on these false teachers, expresses the wish that God's judgment will fall on them. End quote. This is strong language. When Paul says, let them be accursed, let them be anathema. He says, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let them go to hell. That is what he's saying. This is heavy. But listen, Paul could be this strong in his language because Paul understood what is at stake here. When you get to chapter 3 of Galatians, verses 10 through 14, Paul is going to explain there that every single person is under God's curse because of our disobedience to God. Through our sin, every person is now under the curse of God, the anathema of God. But he goes on to explain that Jesus became a curse for those who believe when Jesus died on the cross for our sins 2,000 years ago. Here's what he says in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In other words, through the work of Jesus Christ at Calvary 2,000 years ago, our anathema, your anathema, my anathema, fell on Jesus and he was cursed in your place if you've put your trust and your faith in him. It was paid for through his death. Family, the good news of the gospel is not only about finding happiness in the here and now. The good news of the gospel is not about just improving your lot in the here and the now. The good news of the gospel is about divine rescue. That God came to us in Christ to rescue us from the wrath of God. That's it. That's what the good news of the gospel is. And Paul understands this. Paul understands what's at stake here. And so for the apostle Paul, what he is recognizing is that if there is somebody out there who is turning people away from the rescuer, Jesus Christ, they are essentially damning that person to hell. That's why for the Apostle Paul, it is only fitting that anathema should fall on anyone who prevents other people from experiencing rescue through Jesus by perverting the gospel. That's why he has these strong words. That's why this heaviness is so appropriate. Because again, these false teachers are not just out there doing some less than serious thing. They are actually keeping people from God. They are damning people to hell. How serious is the issue? Serious enough that the Apostle Paul says, listen, even if an angel, even if an angel comes from heaven and preaches another gospel than the one that you received, let that angel be damned. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd, I'd be nervous to talk that way. 
I mean, where does somebody come off with the authority to say to angels, if you preach a different gospel than the gospel I preached, you can go to hell? It's like Paul here is putting the angelic realm on notice. And guess what? There is a whole host of angels that are actually going to fall under this anathema because it's the spirit of Antichrist and the demonic realm that is propagating false gospels in the world. And Paul is saying, look, if you're one of those angels, you can go to hell. This is heavy. This is intense. So check this out. When the angel Moroni allegedly allegedly visited Joseph Smith, and delivered to Joseph Smith a gospel that was Jesus plus good works, Joseph Smith should have said, go to hell. When an angel visited Muhammad and said, Jesus Christ is just a prophet, Jesus Christ is just a man, not the God man, Muhammad should have said, go to hell. Paul is saying, if anybody, any being comes along and changes and perverts the gospel of the grace of God in and through Jesus Christ, let them be damned. Because that message is not a message of good news. That is a message that will damn people. Now here's where it gets really remarkable. As if this wasn't enough, because I wouldn't really want to say that to angels. You probably wouldn't be very comfortable saying that to angels either. But check this out. Paul goes on to now pronounce anathema, not just on angels, but to pronounce anathema on himself and the other apostles should they change the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says that in verse 8. Even if we preach to you a different gospel. And then in verse 9 he says this a little bit louder for those in the back. Right? He's like, in case I wasn't clear, I'll say it again in verse 9. And now Paul includes himself. And this is so remarkable because last week you'll remember that we talked about in the introduction how Paul was working so diligently to demonstrate to the church in Galatia that his apostleship and his authority was not from men. It was from God. Actually, next week we're going to spend verse after verse in the rest of chapter 1, seeing Paul defend at length, again, this idea that his apostleship and his ministry and his message had divine origins. That he was a messenger of God sent by Jesus Christ as an apostle to the Gentiles. So what you would expect Paul to say now in verses 8 and 9, what I would expect Paul to say is something like this. I would expect him to say, if anyone goes against me, the great apostle Paul, let them be anathema. But he doesn't say that. Rather, what he says here is he says, even if I change the message that was delivered to you, then let me be damned. In other words, what I'm trying to say, church, is that in Galatians chapter 1, the apostle Paul relativizes his own authority. This is remarkable. He is relativizing his own authority. He's saying, look, the most important thing is not the Apostle Paul. The most important thing is not even the other apostles. The most important thing is the gospel message that we preach to you. And if anybody changes that, even if I try to change that, then I ought to be accursed. In chapter 2, Paul's going to show that ultimately the other apostles, I'm talking big A apostles, the other apostles affirmed that his message was accurate and they gave him the right hand of fellowship. So the message that Paul preached and the message that the Galatians received is the apostolic consensus. It's the message that Paul and the other apostles received directly from the risen Christ. And that original gospel deposit is the only arbiter of what is true gospel, what is the true path to salvation. And that apostolic consensus, that original gospel has been safeguarded, 
and has been handed down to the church in the book of Galatians and in the rest of the New Testament. In fact, this is what Luther and the other reformers picked up on some 500 years ago. What Luther recognized is that ultimately it's not the church or a pastor or some charismatic leader or a bishop or even the pope who dictates what the gospel is. For Luther and the reformers, they recognize that it's scripture that is our ultimate source of gospel truth. Or as Tim Keller put it, the Bible judges the church. The church does not judge the Bible. It's the scriptures that are the ultimate authority. A spiritual leader's opinions are not inherently authoritative. Your feelings or your experiences are not inherently authoritative. The scriptures are authoritative. And friends, this is one of the major reasons why at Apostles Church, we are a congregationally ruled church. What that means is that ultimate human authority in this church rests with you and me by virtue of the fact that we're members of this church. If you're a member of Apostles Church, ultimate human authority rests with the membership of this church. I have no authority except the authority of the gospel. What that means is that if I decide to change the gospel, to distort the gospel, what you should do is you should oppose me at all cost. You should resist me. And if I won't repent of that false gospel, guess what? You should drive me out of this church. That's our responsibility. It's insightful that Paul is not writing this letter to the leaders in the Galatian churches who are preaching the heresy. He writes this letter to the congregations. And what's implicit in that is Paul is saying, Paul is expecting the congregations to pronounce this anathema on the false teachers, the false pastors, and to drive them out of the churches. That is all of our responsibility. All of us have to guard the gospel deposit in the church family. Okay, fourth and finally, why is the gospel worth fighting for? Verse 10, defending the gospel is pleasing to God. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I love Paul. <laughs> I just love the Apostle Paul. You read Paul and you recognize that you're dealing with somebody who really believes what he says. A person full of conviction, and of course this conviction came from an encounter on a road to the city of Damascus with the risen Christ that forever changed this person. And no longer could he be swayed by the opinions of people. He couldn't care less what people thought about him. All that mattered was his new identity in Jesus Christ. He said, look, I am a servant of Christ. The the Greek word literally means a slave of Christ. I've been bought with a price. I belong to him. And so many of us are so concerned about what other people think about us. Of course, there's a sense in which we should care a little bit about what people think about us. We should brush our teeth. We should comb our hair. We should try to look nice. We should be kind. But in an infinitely greater sense, the amount of concern that we should have about what other people think should pale in comparison to what God thinks about us. And that was Paul's motive. That was Paul's heart. Am I a man pleaser? No. You want proof? Look at what I just said in verses 8 and 9, Paul would say. You don't talk like that if all you care about is making other people happy. Paul was not a man pleaser. Now, it's it's likely that these false teachers were suggesting that he was. It's likely that when they came into these churches and they were talking about circumcision and the law of Moses, they were saying, look, the Apostle Paul, he was trying to soften the gospel message by omitting the parts that are really hard, like circumcision and, you know, those kinds of things. 
And he was doing that because he wanted to make the message more appealing to Gentile converts. So Paul was a people pleaser. That was the thing that these false teachers were saying. And here comes Paul defending himself and saying, I am not a people pleaser. In fact, Paul knows that if he wanted to be a people pleaser, he would have stuck to Judaism. Look in verse 10, he says, If I were still, past tense, trying to please man. What does that mean? It means there was a point in his life when he was trying to please people. In verse 14 of chapter 1, Paul's going to go on to talk about how when he was still a Jew, he was rising up through the ranks of Judaism, that he was becoming an elite Pharisee of Pharisees, that he was going to kind of be top dog in Judaism, accepted and respected and honored by his people. We also know that most of the persecution Paul was facing when he went to Galatia was brought on by the Jews. They stoned him and left him for dead in one of these cities. And so Paul's saying, look, if I, if I was about pleasing people, don't think I would start following Jesus Christ. That's not the path to an easy life and making people happy. He would have stuck to Judaism, but he couldn't. Those days are long gone now. Because Jesus called him. Because Jesus confronted him. Because Jesus commissioned him as an apostle to the Gentiles. And now he is a slave of Jesus Christ. And this brand new identity radically altered his, his desires for approval. And family, listen, the only way to overcome our desires to please other people is to continue leaning more deeply into our new identity in Christ. We have got to get more firmly rooted in the reality that Jesus is our Lord, that we belong to him, that we were bought with a price, that we are now children of God, that our eternal life is secure, that we have an inheritance in heaven waiting for us. The deeper we dive into that, the less we care about what people think about us. Because so often we're afraid of the opinions of people. And we won't speak up and say what needs to be said. We don't want to offend somebody. We wonder, well, if I post this, what kind of comments am I going to get from people? And I'm not suggesting that we should be unnecessarily rude or uh, try to start fights with people or provoke people. But I am suggesting that if we're ever going to be faithful to Jesus Christ and if we're ever going to truly care for souls, we've got to be people who are willing to stand up for the truth of the gospel, defending the gospel like the Apostle Paul is here. Paul's desire was to please God. And because of that, he was willing to defend the gospel. Why does that please God? Well, because the gospel is not just a set of facts that are true. As if God's ultimate, is concern, ultimate concern is that people cross all of their theological T's and dot all of their theological I's. That's not the point. The point is this, that the gospel is, is the directions for how people can be reconciled to their Father in heaven. And so when somebody changes the directions, it again, it cuts people off from a relationship with their Father who loves them. I'm a father. If one of my sons was ever to move far away, it would matter to me that my sons know the way back to my home because I love them, because I want them to be able to come. And if somebody was changing the directions or confusing my children about how to get home to their dad, I would be upset by that because I love my boys. I want them to be able to come to me anytime they want to. And the gospel is like that. The gospel is a message, again, that is the directions about how people can come into relationship with God. And so if people are distorting that and changing that, that grieves the heart of God because he loves people. And so as you and I, as God's children, defend the gospel and keep those directions crystal clear for the world and we proclaim that to the world around us, it pleases the heart of the Father in heaven. So let's conclude this. The message of this paragraph is this. There is no other gospel. The gospel is a gospel of God's grace 
or it is no gospel at all. Any addition is a fatal subtraction. And obviously, family, we live in a time where many people believe that there are many different ways to get to God. Sincerity is the new determiner, uh, determining factor of whether or not you can get to God. Or we live in a time where many people, even people within the church, believe that Christianity needs to evolve with the times. That maybe what we need to do is we need to drop some of the less appealing aspects of Christianity, things like hell, things like the cross, things like the wrath of God and the judgment of God. We need to leave those things behind in the first century where they belong, and we need to highlight the aspects of Christianity that are well-received. Things like social justice, things like tolerance, things like forgiveness. Paul would not sign off on any of that. We need to teach the whole counsel of God. Paul would say, the good news of Christianity is evergreen. Never goes out of style. Never becomes irrelevant. This is the message of salvation that God has given to the world. So we need to hold on to the gospel. The one true gospel for our own souls. For the souls of our children and our grandchildren. For the souls of our broader community who is watching the way that we live and what we preach and they're listening with their ears, we have to hold on to the truth of the gospel for their souls. And when I say hold on, I mean fight for it. I mean that you and I need to have the courage and the conviction to lovingly but forcefully denounce false gospels in this room, denounce false gospels in our homes, denounce false, false gospels that are being propagated in other churches in our city, but this all starts with us. This all starts with you and I having that conviction and that courage. And that's only going to come from leaning more deeply into our new identity in Christ. So family, I remind you, in closing, you were bought with a price. You belong to him. His opinion matters most. Your inheritance is secure. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a daughter or a son of the King, and you're a herald of the greatest news the world has ever heard or the world will ever hear. And because of that, let us be seekers of God's approval and not man's. Amen? Amen. Well, when you walked in, you should have grabbed communion elements today. And we're celebrating communion because we haven't been able to do that for about two and a half months together. But also because one of the main ways that we more deeply root ourselves in our identity in Christ is through celebrating communion together. Because as we receive these elements, we are once again rehearsing the gospel and focusing our attention on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where our sins were forgiven and our salvation was purchased for us so that we no longer have to try to work our way to God. All we do is receive the gift of salvation that he has given to us in and through Jesus Christ. And so, of course, Jesus gave us these elements, and I would invite you to pull them out now. But Jesus gave us communion the night that he was betrayed and he explained that the body or that the bread rather was a picture or a symbol of his body that was broken for us and that the cup was a picture or a symbol of his blood that was shed for our sins and Jesus commanded us as Christians through every age to receive these elements by faith in remembrance of him and so this morning, we've rehearsed the good news of the gospel together. And we're going to receive these elements together by faith. And so again, if you are a Christian, you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to open up these elements. And if you forgot to grab them on the way in, you can go into the foyer right now and you can grab them. But I want you to open these elements and hold them in your hands.
And as you do, let's have a word of prayer. And then we'll receive these elements together. We'll partake together. And then when we're done, we're going to close with one final song of worship together as a church family. So family, would you please pray with me? Father, we are so thankful today for the privilege that it is to gather corporately as the family of God. And the privilege that it is to be able to continue to be a light in this community. To attempt with every ounce of our strength to be clear about the gospel message. And to present that gospel message with love but also with urgency to our non-believing neighbors. And Lord, we are grateful that because of the work of Christ, we have been reconciled to you. Because of the death of Christ, where our sin, where the curse of God was placed on Christ for us, we no longer have to bear that penalty. Because by faith, we are now in Christ, and his death becomes our death. And his righteousness becomes our righteousness. And his resurrection life becomes our eternal resurrection life. Lord, we celebrate this good news together this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for rising for us. And thank you for the promise that you will return sooner and not later to bring us to yourself. We look forward to that day with eagerness and expectation. In fact, we say, come quickly, Lord. We say these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together and then worship. Church, can we stand for this last song? How great, how great, 
How great is your love, how great, how great, how great is your love, how great, how great, how great is your love for us. Amen. Father, just as we reflect on the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ this morning, it is just such sweet news. God, thank you for allowing us to gather this morning. God, thank you for teaching us through your word. And I pray, God, that the gospel that we treasure so dearly, Lord, would would further work itself into our hearts, into our heads. God, we both understand it, live in it, rest in it every single day, and be heralds of that message. So thank you for the gospel. Thank, Thank you for the tenderness and the security and the grace found in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a great Sunday.